0: Hello, and welcome to ONTAP, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Sarah Bae of York University, and I am joined by Brian Herrera of Princeton University. Hello, Brian. How are you enjoying the moderately precedented fall of 2021?
1: Um, I'm, I'm grateful that the swamp season in New Jersey is abating as now we have the cool, brisk air coming in. And it doesn't. And so the desert child that I am is now not always melting. So that feels nice.
0: <laughs> good. Good for you. And and in this episode, we are also joined by Kareem Chubkandani. Kareem, it's wonderful to see you. How are you doing? Um, you are also in, in the Northeast. What
2: are things uh, like at Tufts? Um, Everyone is in a really good mood because the sun is out. Yesterday was the longest, rainiest day, and so it's just nice to walk around campus and see smiles and people in short shorts and feeling their best fantasies.
0: So you are both, are you both mostly in person, uh, partially in person, a hundred percent in person?
2: I'm a hundred percent in person. Although a lot of students have taken to asking for Zoom meetings for one-on-one sessions, but generally classes are in person.
1: The same is same is true for us. We are one hundred percent in-person instruction, and in uh, with a sort of a pretty vigorous masking testing protocol in place, and. Uh, on a personal level, though, I have chosen to sort of adopt. Like, I do have some, I have some on-campus office hours, but I have actually more Zoom office hours. So, I'm sort of going hybrid in terms of office hours, like Kareem.
0: Well, we this will be one of the topics that we address uh, later on in in the episode. Um, it's great to see you both. Um, today, uh, we'll be talking about um, not only the ongoing effects of the pandemic on theater and performance studies and things like teaching, but also research, presentation, professional conferences and gatherings. Um, but we're going to start off with a, a discussion of Trevor Buffone's new book, Renegades, Digital Dance Cultures from Dub Smash to TikTok, um, just published uh, earlier this year. Um, and then finally, uh, reflections on the Netflix series, The Chair. Uh, and our drafts. So I look forward to a a full discussion with you both. Um, Before that, uh, I want to begin with a land acknowledgement, um, which is particularly poignant right now because uh, uh, I'm at York University in Toronto, uh, Canada, And um, we're recording this on Wednesday, September 29th. On Thursday, September 30th, Canada will mark the first National Truth and Reconciliation Day, um, which is an important uh, 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 outcome from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, and uh, recommendations for reconciliation here in Canada. So as a, as a representative of the university, I, I recognize that I am on land um, in which many indigenous nations have longstanding relationships um, that long precede the establishment of York University campuses. York University acknowledges its presence on the traditional territory of these nations. The area where I am, known as Takaranto, has been caretaken by the Anishinaabek nation, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, and the Huron-Wendat. It is now home to many First Nation, Inuit, and Métis communities. We acknowledge the current treaty holders, the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. This territory is subject of the Dish With One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement to peaceably share and care for the Great Lakes region. And if you, if you aren't familiar with the Dish With One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, especially for, for those of you in the Great Lakes region, um, it's really a remarkable uh, commitment to not take more than you need and to make sure that we share um, and leave resources that can be enjoyed by others. Um, it's a really important lesson, especially now. Um, of course, we also connect telematically. So I acknowledge uh, not only the histories of where I currently occupy as a settler here, um, but also our connection through Zoom, which bases its headquarters on the traditional lands of the Ohlone and the Muekma. And of course, my personal reliance on intersecting technological systems that require resources extracted from communities around the world. As I noted, Tomorrow, September 30th, marks the first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation in Canada. This day honors the lost children and survivors of residential schools, their families, and communities. Recognition, accountability, and public remembering of the painful history and continuing effects of residential schools is an important part of our reconciliation process. And many theater programs and professional theaters and arts organizations across the country are taking time to publicly read and reflect on the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation um, Commission's report, as well as other actions such as Orange Shirt Day um, to to recognize this time. So um, it's it's a real honor to be able to to share this with all of you today. And um, and I I just want to express again my my gratitude. Uh, uh, and my obligation to the traditional storytellers and caretakers of this land and the stories that have been here long before me. Thank you. These land acknowledgements have, uh, have become an increasingly important and prominent place in, in theater and performance uh, studies. And, and I think that they're really, um, they've come in for, for some critique. I think, you know, I'm, I'm continue to learn how to do these uh, in an ongoing way. Um, but I'm also really encouraged by the ways in which our discourses have continue to open up and to create different kinds of space and recognition, and and certainly one of the uh, you know and and they tend to be a bit heavy, but there but there's also a tremendous amount of joy and recognition of the resilience um, behind these acknowledgments and the art and the the work and the creativity that endures in spite of all of the. Uh, and, and overcoming all of the obstacles uh, that have been presented in the and the history of violence in which people have suffered and and I really felt that sense of joy tremendously in Trevor Buffoni's uh, book Renegades. Um, I think this is, you know it, it, it is a uniquely, uh, it's a book uniquely suited to the current moment and and to the pandemic in, in all kinds of ways, both in its community building, its engagement, um, as well as critique of digital platforms, um, and was really uh, such a, a delightful read. So it's it's really a, a pleasure to get to, to talk about it today. And Kareem, as someone who is no stranger to either social media, joy, critique, uh, and performance yourself, I'm wondering if you want to... Start us off and, and just say a few things about about the book and, and what you found uh, in reading it.
2: Yeah, I um I'm really excited to talk about the book. And I, I honestly can't believe this book exists already, <laughs> that it, it feels like right now, it feels like today. And as someone who I watched, I watched TikTok videos every night. Right. It's sort of my going to bed ritual. Um, and And I repost them, and so i I just was learning so much about myself and the kinds of systems I participate in um, and I relied on that as this sort of coping during the the pandemic and and so it was it was delightful to read and and to to see young black women celebrated. so maybe i'll tell, tell our listeners a little bit about the book and and some of my takeaways and and hopefully we can talk about digital media and pedagogy and all the incredible things that Trevor Buffoni offers us in the book. So, Renegades, Digital Dance Cultures from Dubsmash to TikTok is a mixed methods project. It um, There's um, digital analysis and performance analysis and ethnography and autoethnography. And the book documents the reach of digital dance trends and the critical race and gender politics that surround the circulation of these dances. And the title, Renegades, it refers to both the the dance t- a challenge that er- that was originated by a young black woman named Jalea Harmon that launches other dance challenges on Dubsmash and TikTok, but it also is a way of naming the irreverence and innovation of these dancers performing in all kinds of under all kinds of constraints, including cultural appropriation and the pandemic. Um, the book is predicated on. Trevor Buffoni's own practice of making dance videos with primarily black high school students that he teaches at Bel Air High School in Texas. And it's the virality that he acquires as a white man dancing these styles that are originated by young black women that opens up questions for him about the conditions under which dance trends become viral. And you know he's asking who gains cultural capital and earns money from their aesthetic labor. So, so there's there's a really important reflexivity that he's engaging in from the preface through the end of the book, and I just I I cannot believe the amount of research that has gone into following what is a rather recent phenomenon. You know, it's, it, that's why I say like I can't believe this book exists already. Um, it tracks the rise and dip and reinvention of Dub Smash, the app Dub Smash, which then transforms this global lip sync app into one that is a. Has a pr- primarily young black use, user base, and it's in these digital communities that viral dances like the Renegade, Corvette, Corvette, the WO, originate, circulate, and migrate to other apps like TikTok or Instagram Reels, and that's sort of where I encountered them. The and these are all new phenomena; they're you know emerging over the last three years, and I just. I'm really amazed that Trevor could research, track and theorize as well so much so quickly and, and accompanying all of it with analytic offerings from black feminist and performance theory. And so just an overview of some of the chapter, the, the sc- scope of the chapters. Um, they start by detailing the racialized worlds of Dub Smash and TikTok naming the ways that TikTok, in particular, privileges white, able-bodied, conventionally beautiful influencers, and then explaining how Dubsmash, in particular, creates networks of creative exchange and, and even comfort and home for young Black people. Uh, uh, Trevor goes on to think about how community standards are set in digital spaces which can feel really nebulous like what's the right way to behave and how are, how are folks setting standards from each other, for each other um, and thinks about how these, these are necessary given the controversies around appropriation and how folks start to credit and tag other users. And then towards the end of the book, we see how Trevor is thinking with his own participation in the Dubsmash community, as I said, of pedagogy, policing and of in-person community building beyond the digital sphere. So, you know, it just a lot happens in, in what is a very short, readable book. It's really fast. Um, and so I just learned a lot. I learned learning about the, the transformation of Dubsmash and the relationship between TikTok and Dubsmash was already fascinating. Um, So it felt really familiar and really exciting and raises lots of thoughts for me about pedagogy and um, our own participation, what it means to perform with our students as well. So that's sort of the scope of some of the things I took away. But I'd love to hear uh, what felt new to you, Sarah and Brian, and maybe what also felt familiar. Because I felt there was a lot of information that I didn't know already that I was taking away. Um, But what felt new and what felt familiar reading this? Maybe Brian will start with you.
1: Oh, goodness. Well, I mean, I think that um, what I will say is what felt new and felt familiar is the fact that I um, can't believe it happened so quickly because I remember having a conversation with Trevor about this book um, not quite a year and a half, not like 15 months ago. Um, I have the benefit of counting Trevor as a as a colleague because we traveled in two of the dis, uh, performance studies sub-disciplines uh, that are overlapping. And I do think create the context that enabled Trevor to really launch into this project because I first came to know Trevor in the context of Latinx theater and performance studies, which is what his specialization is for longstanding. He's a really core collaborative presence, editing volumes, doing a lot of really uh, I- really interesting work. And also really focusing on uh, Trevor's own background is focusing on, on on companies in like Casa 101 in Los Angeles that are really community-based, rooted in collaborative formation, rooted in a, a mode of theatrical productivity that isn't always oriented toward either aesthetic or economic prestige, but more toward a community-based orientation. And so that's sort of how I first... And then um, uh, Trevor also works a lot in musical theater studies, which is another area I work a lot in. And it was in that context... That Trevor I heard some early versions of this material uh gave some presentations through that network internationally, and I heard some of it. we ended up having a little bit of a conversation about strategizing a project like this, and it was like I have lots of conversations, people strategizing book projects, and I look forward to them in eight or nine years. And this was one of those things I did not expect it would be, but I did know. Touche, that... Brian. Touche. Yeah, no, I'm am t- am t- talking to me too. I talk to myself in the mirror all the time about my book project, but it's um. But there was something about it that uh, I think what I what I really appreciate Karim about you pointing out about how how deftly the um, research apparatus is deployed in service of the story, not necessarily in service of the academy. There's a way in which the Academic apparatus is used very deftly in service of making legible this kind of really important work, but not necessarily looking to intervene in a conversation or to introduce a critical paradigm, some of the things that often we get caught up in. And yet there's this incredible thread of an incredible list of books if you haven't read it you should kind of use of citational politics of doing call-outs to books that that reminding you of a book you might have read a while ago or have heard about but haven't read but flagging why it's relevant and doing a way that and so there's a kind of um understanding of the tools of, of, of academia in a way that is, I think, uh, extraordinarily refreshing and is also, I think, really just saying, these are the tools I have as a scholar. I'm Trevor. I have these tools as a scholar. There's this thing I'm trying to figure out but also advocate for. Let me use my tools as a scholar and put them in service of making sure these black content creators have are understood as meaningful um, shapers of of culture and life in the contemporary moment, and it was just a really elegant uh, demonstration of somebody who he might he's very deprecating about his own dance moves, but his own academic moves are quite skilled in this book, and I think he understands them and how they can be in service of this of this group of of artists that he was able to learn about as a result of his circumstances. Because the thing that just is very humbling, he's full time employed as a high school teacher and. Um, They are probably not giving him incentives to write books, but there's something about the fact that he was able to chose to deploy those skills that we have in the Academy in the way he did is I think what what was, um, even though I was aware of this project, even though I know Trevor's voice and know Trevor's work, what was very new to me was just watching those tools being used in a slightly different way toward a different end that seemed to be both within and beyond the Academy. This is a book that I think um, is one of those rare books where you say this is a scholarly book that could actually accomplish a readership well beyond the Academy.
0: Well, I mean, there's something about... um you know, his uh, I I agree with everything that you you both have said, and and he very deftly draws you know points to different audiences, but also draws them into conversation together, not just across genre and and generations, right? And I think in some ways the book is a an academic echo of what he's doing as a as a co performer with his students and and for media, but also. Um, Also, historically, I mean, when was the last time that somebody put, you know, this bridge called My Back into conversation with, uh, you know, social media networks uh, in conversation with, you know, AI algorithms and thinking about how those how those line up in particular and in really relevant ways. And so I thought. You know there's a there's a and i don't know if he intends this there's a little bit of a joke i think in the subtitle right from dub smash to TikTok, right you know like this is a, a vast expanse of two things that happened almost for many of us in the blink of an eye um and i would say that a lot of people who are familiar with TikTok might not even be familiar with dub smash um so it's a little bit like you know like you know a, a you know history of performance from monday to thursday afternoon um, but at the same time, he really then you know explains just how deep and how much has been happening, both within that within that space, but all, how many things inform it, and so there really is a an expansive and, and a really robust
2: you know history and engagement uh, engagement here. You know, it, that, just the way you frame that the sort of short span of time makes me also think about. The rate of academic production and the shape of a book, you know, I mean, this this each of the chapters is is working with a different kind of archive, um, from his own meetings with uh, actual influencers to the kind of mundane activities of the classroom to who is who's actually messaging him on Instagram. That and that that was that that chapter was actually really great when Karen slides into your DMs, thinking about how white women are critiquing um, specifically the music that he's dancing to and saying that it's inappropriate, uses uh, offensive language and, and things like that. And he, he offers this argument about how to listen. And, and also, um, what is at stake in listening to the music and listening to young people's interest in that language? Um, and. And who, and who should be dancing to it. So I, I just think that the kind of care that comes through that is, is really great. Um, but all of this had me thinking about how we use digital media in the classroom as well, um, because people are, are messaging him to ask, how, how do you do this? How do you execute this? Uh, which I think is, you know he, he, tur- he turns the book into a resource at, towards the end which I think you know is, is really a gift and I, and I wonder if we you might talk about or maybe I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about what I do but but pass it on but I, you know I in my intro to queer studies class I have students instead of doing weekly response papers they do uh, weekly Instagram posts uh, and their their Instagram handle is at queer studies tufts and it's a it's a' um, it's an account that has been building on, e- on on itself for four years now, so there are hundreds of posts that are thinking about Butler and e. Patrick Johnson and Marlon Bailey through memes um, and and sometimes students you know sketch cartoons or or they they use uh, memes that they already know, but it's really lovely to see them work uh, tag oh, they use geotags and they use comments and other kinds of tags to animate their their posts as well. So it's just it, I think it's really smart to give students that option, right? To to en- play with digital media because it is their language and that's that's one of Buffoni's offerings is that I'm learning from them. Mm-hmm. I'm learning from my students and I'm performing in the language that they work with every day and and it's embodied language and and that's something I've learned from my students playing with Instagram with them and I was wondering if if and how digital media shows up in your pedagogies.
0: Well, I, I kind of feel like this is, you know, an an ideal pairing between the two of you because I think of, you know, for folks who have been bringing scholarly conversations there and their own research into the public sphere you know through through any number of different ways um most recently brian you and your and your you know theater click newsletter but bef- before that the stinky lulu i mean i still remember stinky lulu back when it was you know uh, blogger um and uh you know and the and 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 featured actress uh yeah, yeah. you know of the academy awards uh you know a uh, feature that that came up all the time and so you know, I guess, I guess, you know, maybe, Brian, if you can sort of think or kind of reflect on your own process, like you've been working in, in online, public, digital space for, for several years now, maybe a, a decade or more. Um, and I'd be kind of curious to hear you think about, um, you know, how, how you see these new platforms and, and maybe even how your own kind of practice has changed.
1: Well, I think that one of the things that I think I really admire about what Trevor, what Buffone names in the book is the way he talks about how there's a way in which there's the romance. And we'll be talking later about the chair uh, and the ways in which the different romances of what is the role of teacher in relation to collaboration and the way that the different models of pedagogy in the in the narrative, in the Netflix series of the chair is offered. And I think what what Buffone does is very clearly is he sort of creates a very specific A channel like it's like we do this in our classroom in certain ways we it is this sort of there's a way in which he's not sort of saying i'm the cool teacher that's not at all what Buffone is doing here it's saying this is a tool that we have in addition to the other tools we have and let's find a way when we can do it and building community and building and getting support and endorsement from a from an interested administration all those things and i think that that's one of the things that is really and what i've admired about kareem's use of instagram too is the ways in which The ways in which it's very um, attentive and uh, responsive to the reality of the pedagogic enterprise, while also bending it and figuring out where are the pockets of opportunity and innovation. And indeed, that's, I think, part of, I think, as my own practice as social, because indeed, I, I was blogging in the before... I was blogging before Facebook, basically, and uh, it was uh, also the turn when interactive comments became to dominate what the platform was, that turn that happened around 2010 when commenting became a different reality in terms of what the internet was, was about and for. That is also the point when I sort of stepped away from from routine blogging because the culture of blogging shifted. That also roughly was coterminous with uh, sort of the uh, spiking rise of TikTok and all of these, like everything, micro and Facebook introduced micro blogging as a sort of a whole new practice. And so there's a lot of things and I've dabbled in different platforms along the way. And I do think, and even, and I guess when you were asking Kareem, what do we do digitally? I said, I don't do anything. And I was like, oh yeah, I have this newsletter. And so in some <laughs> ways I, I have been... um because this is the next wave of blogging, which is the newsletter format, right? And it's something I started a while ago for a few different reasons. And then I teach a course pretty routinely called Theater in Society Now. And one of the things I try to bring contemporary college students into is an awareness of the complex ecosystem of professional theater. And so I found that Theater Current Events was a way to demonstrate that theater is not just Broadway. Theater is not just what you saw in high school. It's not just what you see on campus, but there's all different modes. And sometimes Theater Current Events is something the ways into that sort of thing. And also bridging some some ways of trying to resist that ways that the professional structures create divisions in the theater industry. And so, um, so it's a primary curricular resource for that class. And then I began to realize it was providing a service in a variety of different ways to other communities. So part of what I have been really balancing is trying to figure out what how to sustain it, how long I'm doing it. I'm planning to do it through the end, I think through the calendar year of 2022, and then we'll see if it lives beyond that. But uh, it started out as a curricular resource that also I felt was useful as an aggregator since there were no good aggregators across these different ecosystems. And it is, I think, about trying to make sure that we have ways in. And as a person who comes out of Gen X, in a different media landscape, there's a way in which I worry about um, the the, uh, the sort of the narrow lanes that people traverse in. And when you're enter, when you're part of a theatrical tradition, when you're part of a cultural community, there's ways of like it's easy to not know what's going on next door. And so, part of what I see as my gift and my opportunity is to try to find ways that the digital can actually not only narrowcast us. That the digital can still be used to bring people aware to things that are happening that they just didn't even know because it wasn't in their priority circuit of engagement. And so, so it is. Um, it's con- It's continuous, and it's. Uh, and I think that uh, the opportunity is. I started doing because I wanted to learn what a newsletter was, and people said you're doing a blog, and I said no, it's not a blog, and I said oh, I guess it is kind of a blog. So I think I'm just. I've been a blogger in all of the different ways that bloggers have have existed. So that's you know, a roundabout Brian- way to answer.
0: Your work, though, and, and in the context of Buffoni's book, I mean, it, it really reminds us, I think, how pedagogical social media is. That 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 this is a space of teaching and learning almost continuously, and that the things that tend to go viral are the things that introduce us to a new world we didn't see, or give us an example of something else that we could become. Or or have an explicit pedagogical mission. I'm thinking of all the YouTube videos that are how-to's, or and and that as its own like I would even say like a mega genre, and and so it raises a real question because I think that one of the uh, effects of the pandemic has been that we all had the opportunity to, and frankly, were compelled to pay attention to things that had been there for a long time. Um, both good in, in terms of these kinds of alternative pedagogical practices through social media um, and uh, and ill, right? All kinds of entrenched uh, discrimination and racism and exclusionary practices um, uh, throughout, throughout the profession and, and in academia. And so I guess maybe to kind of pivot from thinking about, there's been a lot of discussion about the pandemic and the way it's shaped theater and performance practices, the way it's shaping performance studies, the way we're sort of changing our teaching. But I'm, I'm curious to think, maybe even just to focus a bit more narrowly to start uh, on the question of how do these revelations of media and different media platforms um, and the things that we've been compelled to do... You know, beyond like, well, what you know, what will, how will the field sustain itself, or what you know, it's like, it's a little bit like, well, what does it mean that the whole world has become a pedagogical platform? What does it mean that the role of teacher has and and knowledge provider um, has been dispersed and decentered in so many powerful ways? And and what is it that people you know that theater and performance students. And learners, and and by that I think we can refer not just to the people who are enrolled in classes, but also those of us who are leading them. You know, think differently about about the pedagogical landscape um, in in this new context.
1: Well, the the tag in that I would bridge back to Trevor's book is that one of the things I was really impressed by uh, over the last year and a half is how many of my colleagues at the Lewis Center at Princeton, who are were the technicians, were the folks who are working in different costume shots, like all these folks who were really rooted in sort of real space real time kind of practice um found it really thrilling to learn with the students who were like they were not teaching the students how to do things they were working bringing their skills with the students to figure out how do we do this on how do we do this using remote technologies like so there was a kind of a learning with space that was i think and what i learned about my own myself in the in the zoom zone was um I made a choice that really served me early on. As I said, I'm going to be at the learning edge of, edge of pedagogy. I'm not going to try to do what I know how to do. I'm going to try to figure out what I can do in this space. And and I found myself really sort of by the end of last spring having had a lot of real growth and a lot of real excitement because I had chosen to do it in a responsive pedagogy mode, not trying to squeeze things into this new platform, but to really see like what, what does this new platform accommodate. And indeed, some of my resistance in coming back was like I feel like I haven't really figured it out. Out yet, and I've got to stop and try to go. You know, it was like, eh, but I do think that that is, um, uh. It is it does oblige the willingness to learn and the willingness to learn alongside with and the willingness to fail and not be embarrassed that you can't find the dongle, but to sort of appreciate the fact that this is an opportunity of growth for us all. And this is this is the moment I think that the pandemic actually did allow like I think students showed a lot of grace to their faculty in a lot of cases, not all of them, but there was a lot of ways in which there was sort of a sense like we're trying and we're trying to figure it out. And I do feel like I observed a number of colleagues who just tried to do what they had been doing in a different modality, and they were the ones who burned out the quickest. I think the folks, you know, so there is a space, that reminder of how to learn with your students in a way that doesn't abandon the principles and practices of your expertise, but also moves forward in a way that is um, engaging opportunity and obligations of the contemporary moment.
0: How about you, Kareem? I mean, because you do so much physical work with your students uh, as well, and I, you know, I know that our dance faculty, you know, we we were able to do some really exciting things, but we also confronted some, you know, some real challenges. Like there's just ways that you can move in a enclosed space. I'm I'm curious what your what your experience ha- has been in this in this time as well.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I think there. There are things I'm trying to move back and forth between the screen and, and the classroom. And sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. So in my queer nightlife class that I taught online, we would have uh, a dance break. Everybody would have a chance to curate a DJ set and we'd have a dance break. Um, and there, it you know, students dancing in the privacy of their rooms felt really great, right? It felt necessary, it felt like a break from it, it allowed you to turn your room into a different kind of space and, and they were actually less self-conscious there. Now I'm teaching a queer dance class and um, each morning a student leads an activation and I think they're actually much more self-conscious in person and most, most of these classes have non, non-dancers and non-performers in them. Um, but actually, being with others and having to do this very brief movement exercise is actually a little bit more constrained in the classroom than it is in the privacy of of your home, and so it um, there's a, there's a bit of a challenge there. There's um, or there's learning how to invite students in into their bodies in different ways, I guess. But then there's you know things like trying to recreate breakout rooms in person and getting you know when students get up and leave and walk to a different space now i can't even find them in the building they've like gone <laughs> off somewhere and i have to you can't like, suck
0: them all back simultaneously I can't, I can't suck them all <laughs> with, with a
2: 30 second yeah um so just like t- like once you're working with bodies in person there's actually time to settle in and the, it, it just uh it eats up time but it also is just a reminder that bodies are working in different ways um and that they enjoy each other's company and, you know, you don't want to cut them off. And, uh, and so so trying to replicate the breakout room in person or going back to sort of small group work is is its own time management challenge. Um, and then just, you know, I'm watching my grad students trying to work between um, hybrid and in person, that they are, you know. Their class has to go online but they have to teach class in person so they have to budget time between um, finishing teaching a class and then taking a class and trying to get home in a short amount of time or find somewhere on campus to teach and so like literal space and time (laughs) become matters that weren't a thing when you were just always at your desk and i um and just watching people Learn how to navigate space and time again, including myself. Um, trying to get places on time, and <laughs> I'm not very good at it, anyways. And now, I uh, I struggle with that. Yeah. How about you, Sarah?
0: Well, I'm. I mean, listening to you both, I'm. I'm just, you know, reminded. I mean, I think the thing that has been hardest for many of us is how dehumanizing the the, the screen cultures can be, um, both in a n- Macro sense, but also just in an immediate sense, right, like you know we just become so acculturated to people's faces as two dimensional projections, and we forget the bodies behind the screen and and there's a lot of evidence that people have neglected their own bodies um you know during dur- during this time and and you know thinking about about teaching and making work in these spaces, I think that's what I have always found so invigorating about, about Trevor's work, um, which I admit I, I came to mostly as a fan um, because I follow him on Twitter. And so he started posting, you know, when he was on Good Morning America and all these, all these shows. But I really, I really admire um, the joy and the play and the fun. And I think that's one of the things that's been really hard to hang on to. Um, in 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 the current context than i and, and in the wake of the pandemic, right and and for very good reasons, I guess you know I, I have a little bit of a different position i'm I'm an administrator so you know I'm positioned you know at the intersection of a whole bunch of competing and sometimes contradictory desires um, coming out of the pandemic from from all sides. Um, and I think that you know finding, you know, there isn't one solution that works for everybody, so but it's trying to look at, you know, what are the lessons, what can we continue without giving up what we know was really powerful and really positive before the pandemic, right? Like not everything has to be digital all the time, but there are these these opportunities uh, to 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 explore. And I, I, I'm with you, Brian. I really hope that a sense of experimentation and uh, and kind of you know playfulness can be can be part of what we build into. Um, at the same time, I think it's really important to recognize, and I, I think a lot about who not just who our students are now, but who are they going to be in two, three, four, five years, right? Who are the you know what are, what are the people who are, who spent seventh and eighth grade in online school think about the arts? How do they think about performance? what are the performances that they will align with? And, and you know, I, think, I think again, this question of like, what is the pedagogy of, of social media and digital communities for, you know, for all of our students, you know, Trevor's as, as well as the, the, the folks who come to our, university, our institutions, you know, what, is, what does that look like? And, and I think that's gonna actually have even more of a profound effect on theater and performance studies going forward than any of the technologies or the, or the current practices. It's, it's that there, there is, I think, going to be a generational shift that is going to require us to really attend to where young people are in a, in a different way than we maybe have before.
1: And I would I would just tag onto that because I think you're exactly right. I do think that the one of the gifts that this book will, even though it is very much about a, con- a particular moment, and it has that risk of, of feeling like, oh, remember when it, when there was a TikTok? There is like Trevor's book does have that, and it's written with that consciousness and of uh, understanding how these proprietary platforms change and go away. But the other thing is, is it is it does describe a habitus in some ways, a digital habitus that Mm. many young people were engaging that did have performance as a central vocabulary and shifting what they expected with performance. And I do think that already I'm seeing in the students that I work with at the college level that there is a there is now a normative expectation that digital performance should be there. There should be ways of engaging performance remotely as well as we want to go back to the theater. There is no anxiety or preciousness about, you know, because this was also a moment when they were looking at TikTok and watching Hamilton. And doing these whatever other shows they might have done themselves in their school clubs uh, that engage remote technology. So there's a kind of a a preciousness that will date us generationally, I think, in terms of the divide between uh, between like why shouldn't there be recorded, streamed uh, live or or video on demand versions of performances available? That, of course, we're going to have union and other regulations that interrupt that. But there is a kind of an expectation that performance is a vocabulary of the digital realm that I think this student, that this generation of twelve to twenty-two year olds, is going to just take for granted in a way that's very different.
2: You know, Brian, I think there's something we don't get from Trevor's book is the 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 use of these digital platforms to refuse performance. So, um, the you know there are those those TikToks in which. Um, someone just points to text and and the automatic reader just reads it out and they so people actually just film their faces or are filming just the like lights flashing in their room or their cat while something while the automated reader is just sort of reading out text and so I think they're but 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 I you know I, I I think that is also changing the, the expectations in that there is an expectation for closed captioning, for example, that is actually really important and good, you know. Um, and one of the things that I've encountered going back to the classroom is that students w- who um, are deaf or hearing impaired can't lip read anymore, right? And and so, you know. Um, when we think about accessibility are, are we providing everyone with clear masks and they, they, they're supposedly in short supply or according to some administrators um, but you know how are we thinking about access the we provided a lot of accessibility with digital learning that I think we're taking away from some of our students going back to the classroom um, with closed captioning with being able to see full faces um, and I think that it's a moment to also consider how can we bring those back uh, as we tran- transition back to in person, but but there there also I think digital media is full of all these ways of performing without the body <laughs> um, that that teach us to to think about refusal and 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 you know I hear this especially in gender from my gender studies students who know that gender is performance and they're finding every possible way to not be, to, to not perform or not fall into regimes of, perform, of legibility. <laughs> you know, and they keep, they keep saying this and I'm like, what do you really mean? But they're like, I don't want you to perceive me. Um, but they're, they're and, and you know, students have said the, the most comfortable I felt in my gender was being in my room and not having to encounter people on a regular basis. Um and and so there I don't, I don't know there's some interesting things going on with around the language of performance and and of course, I think performativity as well. I, I'm thinking about the sort of special issue that just came out on performativity and 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 the performative in the way it's being used daily by my students in what they what they think it means, but but they really there is a language that social media has given us to to think about the body. In new ways, um, yeah
1: well, one of the things is you're speaking, Kareem, that um, about closed captioning. one of the things I love about closed captioning on TikTok is it's full of errors and adjustments, like words that, that will be screened out so there's all these alternate spellings. So there's a kind of way where closed captioning on TikTok in particular, and indeed when we get used to auto transcriptions on Zoom or whatever, there's a kind of a, a allowance for imperfection like sort of this uh, whereas so many uh, resistances to accommodations is about trying to reach for perfection. Like sort of we have like we can't do it because we can't do it perfectly. So we can't do it at all. And I think what the digital has shown us is sometimes imperfect is 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 okay and variant. You know, just one of the things that I really enjoyed was being able to like in pedagogy was like allowing people to sort of make sure um, rename yourself so as you would like to be addressed or any information that's important for us to know. Rename yourself. Put that in your, you know, there's a way. So rather than doing little, like there's just a way of communicating and being participant or non-participant in a way that was still about engaging. And I think that that question of imperfection I'm gonna use that, not so elegantly, but I'm gonna use that as a sort of a notion of, like we've, uh, in thinking about The Chair, the Netflix film, uh, or uh, 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 series, The Chair, which is six episodes, half hour, roughly each, uh, which is, I think, part of a marvel of imperfection in terms of trying to capture, uh, one of the very first times uh, that we've seen uh, the, like what does it mean, what is academia as a workplace that is really rooted in questions of of, of imperfection and inaccessibility and and uh, sort of uh, hostility and all these things, but often sort of offers a veneer of august uh, august self understanding. Sort of, we know what we're doing here. We know what we're doing, and yet with the chair in um, is sort of. It revels in a comedic way in the imperfections of the promise of the of the academic institution and even as it is sort of what many observers have noted is an imperfect series itself like so so one of the things that um uh, so I'm charged with sort of getting getting us to sort of move to the third field of our conversation of the chair, and uh, I, I happily embraced it as a topic for us to discuss. I've been tracking as I do all the things I do for Theater Click and everything else. I've been keeping track of the discourse. I've been watching all the critiques. I've been doing all the things uh, with it, and I had not been able to bring myself to finish watching it until uh, preparing for today's podcast. Indeed, in, uh, the first episode, I think I started no less than 15 times and I would watch a minute and a half and I'd have to stop and go away and one of the things I think it's worth noting about The Chair for those of you who haven't seen it I, I didn't do my good homework in getting our release date but it was released shortly there was an announcement of it a trailer announcement it's been sort of there's been some buzz brewing for about a year it's built around a character uh played by Sandra Oh uh a quite um adored artist in a lot of different sectors about the first woman of color to become chair at a sort of a fairly uh legibly conventional elite northeast private liberal arts institution and so there's this awareness that this the show was coming it dropped on it dropped on netflix a few weeks right about the time we were going back to school so there was a lot of interest uh, especially among academic observers in watching it with a fairly fine grain and um i want i want to um and so it 's three three uh it 's six episodes that sort of do and it 's offered as Karen Tonkson in her piece for Slate reminds us it really does tell the story of an of a of a of a woman uh, chair for the first time in hundreds of years or whatever and it, but it does so in the genre of a comedy and and it does so in the genre of arguably even a sitcom adapted for a netflix Netflix uh, sort of base, and so it tells the story of not only. Uh, June Park, I believe the character's name is, is uh, becomes chair of the department, this English department, at, at the fictional Pembroke University, which is sort of offered as simultaneously an Ivy and a not Ivy, Pembroke being the name that is attached to Brown's Historic Women's College. So it's very much in that zone of a sort of an elite uh, liberal arts college in the Northeast. And then, uh, so it's her becoming the first chair. So there's that aspect of it. It's a workplace comedy. But then there's this whole other thread of a, of a relationship with a colleague and her, her own struggle being a single mother of an adopted of an adopted daughter and all kinds of things like that that take it in the way that many sitcoms do of a workplace comedy often has the home site as well. And so we have what is in a conventional sitcom structure an A-plot and a B-plot built into the architecture of the show. We'll see workplace scenes and we'll see work colleague scenes and then we'll also sometimes see domestic scenes. And typically that does work as the narrative of the show goes of this A-plot of how is she doing as chair and then the B-plot of what's going on in her personal personal life, especially as it relates to this colleague, whose um, clumsiness and sort of m- m- mis- missteps of all kinds sort of incites a sort of a campus scandal. But the crucial thread for me is uh, what we might call in a conventional sitcom structure, the C-plot, which is typically a running gag. And I would say that the A-plot is Park is chair, The B-plot is what's going on at home and what's going on with her relationship with the ousted Bill, the professor who got in trouble. And then the C-plot is the dinosaurs, this question of the uh, elder professors who are uh, on a list of we got to get rid of them, get rid of some of them because they're not teaching big enough classes, notably the uh, character of Joan played by Holland Taylor and another character played by Bob Balaban. And of course, threading through all of this is some conventional things like student activism, the vulnerability of a woman of color coming up for tenure, all of these things and it's a fascinating fascinating way that as I think Caritha Mitchell in her piece which was published on um uh, on cnn.com excuse me she reminds us that genre and character construction is actually one of the crucial ways to read the show and the struggle of what does it mean to sort of see a woman of color as protagonist is a really important uh, sort of challenge that this that this that this show actually presents so i think um it's, I, I, I suspect it's doing well enough that we'll likely see it again, see it again, coming back for another cycle of sh- episodes, but it's a fascinatingly imperfect show as the way most first seasons of sitcoms are, and so um, I'm I'm curious, uh, it, got, it got a lot of attention, and it got a lot of attention in some ways of, like, it got it wrong, it got these things wrong, and that's where I think Caritha Mitchell, our performance studies colleague, sort of her piece really does remind us we have to read it in terms of genre and form as well as content, and and then also in terms of the politics of representation that having Sandra Oh as the central character here opens up both in terms of our habits of receiving narratives in these genres, but then also what they trigger for us in the way of response. So that's sort of my, sort of how I now have made sense, finally having sort of de- struggled through the show in my own way. I didn't hate it. I loved the aunties. I loved Holland Taylor. I loved a lot of things about it. But it really, once I sort of leaned into the things that we do, dramaturgy, I found a way to understand how the show is actually working, both Working on ways I enjoyed and ways that I found repellent.
0: <laughs> you know, I, I listening to you, Brian, reminds me. My my mother in law uh, was a professional nurse for you know m- virtually her entire working life, um, and she could never watch any hospital or medical themed show because the inaccuracies of everything from chest compressions to terminology to you know basic sanitary practices so enraged her that um, that she couldn't watch it and I, I, I wondered also if, if there isn't a similar kind of effect um, with, with some of our colleagues it, it's also true that if you've never been in one of those, Relatively, you know, fairly old, um, um, elite, moneyed, you know, mostly East Coast, Northeast institutions. Um, what you see on the chair can look like a like a real trope and 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 like and be like who has an office that looks like that and you know um, you know uh, as I as I live in my own kind of mostly cinder block uh, midcent mid 20th century construction I can totally appreciate it but but in fact dear listener uh, there are such institutions in which um, the the office is as large if not larger than that of, of Ji-Yoon Kim and um, and you do have wood paneling and libraries in your classrooms uh, you know and so it's 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 also just the the catch all of, of academia and university life um, a, as being such a, vari- a a varied place and having so many different kinds of experiences and yet get yet catalyzing in in very recognizable kind of um, uh, repeated tropes in popular culture and, and, and media uh, you know so it's like you know everything from you know Animal House to uh, you know, to whatever, you know, various, you know, college comedies. I'm, I'm curious, and I think it's really interesting to, to analyze it as a sitcom because there are very few, I would say, out loud jokes in the show. Um, you know, having served as a chair... Um, and currently serving as an academic administrator, of which people have, I'm sure, as many um, opinions as they do of the show, uh, uh, good and bad. Um, I would say that my most common uh, response was one of wincing um, throughout uh, the, the the show, in in one way or one way or another. But I think your your explication of the of the three kind of plots was really was really great. I do I do just want to say a, a, a quick shout out to. Um, the adoption subplot um, because it is, I think, the first time that I have seen in certainly popular media, but in any kind of media, a um, interracial adoption that was not by a white parent. Um, And and so I felt like there were questions of authenticity and culture and uh, representation and community and family in that dynamic um, of a, a Korean American parent adopting a, a, a Latinx child and trying to bridge the the connections between those, that I felt really powerful and something I had I had really I had just never seen um, engaged in, in storytelling uh, before. So I, I found a lot of it to be to be you know quite exciting in in lots of different ways. Kareem. Uh, what, were, what were your thoughts on, on this?
2: Well, it's, I mean, it's funny that you, you, you talk about the adoption because I thought that was actually really beautiful in the kind of uh, when, when her daughter, when she realizes that, spoiler alert, when she realizes that her daughter is actually learning Korean, um, even though she refuses to speak it and, and is trying to identify herself with English, but also with, um, with, with Latinidad, the, it, it, the 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 show makes sort of a, a, ge- a hopeful gesture <laughs> towards some kind of not post racial but but other kind of future for racial minorities, and it doesn't do that for the university, right? It, it feels like it it's trying to tell us here's here are all the problems with the university as is. But it doesn't get to a so what. It doesn't sort of reach forward, and and I'm and I'm not, and I think maybe that is my only critique of the show. Like I really enjoyed it. Um, I watched it three times by accident. Um, just friends wanted to watch it. We were hanging out, and they hadn't seen it, and so I just watched it with this friend, and then that friend, and that friend. So I've seen the whole thing three times through, and I enjoyed it each time. It just I didn't know what it wanted for the academy at the end of it. It seemed to know what it wanted for, for for the home and for intergenerational families and for uh and for migrants you know the the scene with the aunties brian that you mentioned is so good and you know they they sort of the show sort of even recovers the the gossipy auntie as the also forgiving caretaker as they they bring jade duplass's character back home and, and nurse him in some sense, and clean his house too, you know, so so there, there are all these really lovely possibilities that it offers for um, racialized representation. And then, you know, I, I know that you gave us A, B and C plots, but to me, D plot was, was the most important, which was Yasmin McKay's uh, tenure case, because, <laughs> you know, my tenure file is in and I'm sitting and waiting and biting my nails and and stressing, you know, and and to to see the 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 language of objectivity that is brought by by the person filing her tenure case saying you know i have to say something bad so that they know i'm not i'm really taking you seriously um is to me <laughs> terrifying right the the idea that someone's going to try and be objective about my work looking at it only on paper um and not even that but that like the the t- the tenure and promotion committee at my institution probably only knows me as like the angry brown person speaking up against guns being on uh, against our our campus beliefs having guns right at faculty meetings like that's probably the only place that they've encountered me and then on paper talking about sex and drag <laughs> right so I don't know like it it is it is scary right to to be an un- near, untenured Fa- queer faculty of color, um, at an elite private, predominantly white institution. Um and so so watching her and I, I thought she was really brilliantly played and I could be biased, but like I had I had Thanksgiving dinner with Nana Mensa once, the actor who plays her, and I'm like, oh I this is my this is my one claim to fame. Um but I, I, I thought she she to me meant a lot, and i and I felt so my other critique is i feel I feel like they left out her the kind of world making that young faculty of color do right with you know not even in your department, but you find people in other departments, you find people at other campuses and you drink and you complain <laughs> um and and I think that they missed out on that opportunity to show the kind of um world building that that happens beyond the department um that that really gets us through the 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 untenured gets untenured faculty through the um, process of of living inside of these institutions. I,
1: I would absolutely agree that there that and and indeed I'm reminded of in some ways the blog that Sarah mentioned earlier on that when I did Stinky Lulu supporting Actress Sundays, one of my attention one of my real interests was in these characters that were not given their space to be seen. Like that they were there, they were there as adornment or dramatic threads or props for the principles, but there was something that the actors often did in what I called actressing at the edges that they sketched in worlds that we could almost imagine happening just off screen and that's where yeah. I do think it's really worth acknowledging that uh the character of Yaz is essential to the story, but is not centered in the story and and uh, she is often as a prop for other characters in a B or C in the particularly the a what I call the A and the C plot, and I think that that is the right critique to offer that that it didn't create that space but in some ways um and i think there is a hunger for understanding what these alternate world making options would be and using the apparatus of the academy for for different reasons just as the students like like we've seen a lot of accounts of students we have seen very few accounts of of academic politics the one thing i would say is um and for me, the best depiction of acad- academia that I've seen is, forgive me on this, is White Lotus, the HBO show about the resort in Hawaii. Because it was the one of this total institution that was really about sustaining itself with a rotating cast, not only of personnel, but of guests. And for me, it's it sort of really felt like the Academy. This one, <laughs> I think the antis are really... Um, crucial to understanding i think what this what this is about i think the academy is the setting but i think it is really about the collision between tradition and future right and it's really the the show is really asking the question of like um of in some ways like how do we move forward and will tradition be our support in moving forward to a survivable future or will tradition get in the way and the anthes show the nimbleness of that and the academy becomes the context in which it's not nimble and it sort of becomes this stricture and it is this thing of like my favorite gesture, spoiler alert, is episodes one through five and a half are really about how uh, ji Yun Kim is um, not demonstrating herself to be a very effective chair What I love about this last half of episode six is we see what a deft maneuver like she's great. She knows exactly how to beat, how to how to pull which levers when. And, and there is a kind of way of that kind of the question of what is the benefit of tradition and convention, and what is the benefit of alternate paths forward? What is the benefit of being what the aunties call sometimes a Frankenstein family, as opposed to aligning with expectations of family? So in some ways, I think the academy is a little bit of a red herring here, because we see folks who are embedded with tradition, but are feeling outdated. Like almost everybody is sort of where do they fit in relation to transition? And then we have diverting side plots like David Duchovny, all of those things. But... But there is a kind of way where I don't know that it's trying to be about the Academy. It's using the Academy as a backdrop for the emotional investments that we have both in living happily, but then also living according to tradition and convention and expectation.
0: Which of course supports your read of this as a sitcom, right? Because every sitcom is basically a, a, about the same kind of structure. It's just the, the context of it changes. Um, you know, I'm. i in listening to you talk, Brian. I'm. I was, you know, and thinking about about uh, the Yasma K character as a supporting character. You know, I don't. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think we ever see her away from the institution. Like she has no domestic private space. And and I'm reminded of a question from years and years ago um, in in graduate school on some like play analysis worksheet that was, you know. Um, that that asked about you know character's own kind of interior worlds and how those are represented and and the question was you know why does Hamlet have a best friend but Othello doesn't and and as you and I and I think there's a really you know like why why does Kim and and Dobson which is the Jay Duplass, Duplass character um, and even the Elliot rents the Bob. Um, Babylon, Car- like, Why do they get a private moment at home and a partner or a best friend or a behind the scenes, but, but Yaz McKay does not?
1: Or, or even Joan gets to make friends with the IT guy, right? Like, uh, like right. everybody else seems to have a foil, whereas uh, like and I think like if we put the same principle in terms of this was a musical, I don't know that Yaz would have a song. That wasn't right. with one of these other characters, whereas everybody else would. And that's one of the things when you see who's being prioritized in a story. Do they have a life beyond the screen? Do they have a relationship? Do they have a home existence beyond? But all of her scenes are in relationship to senior faculty members.
0: However, the, the, she is also the only character that we see, with the exception of Kim, a little bit, but who is actually really teaching. And what's interesting there, and, and I'll, I'll sort of use this as a way to maybe bring us to, to final comments, um, which I'll then kick to Kareem, but is, is, that, is that she's teaching uh, through the language of performance and the language of media, because she has her students, um, you know, making songs and staging skits and, and creating these kinds of media engagements around the material that she's teaching. Um, but that's really the only active teaching that we see, um, with the exception of the the scandal that we get, you know, the sort of inciting incident for you know the the, the student rebellion plot that we get for uh, you know Phil, Bill, Bill you know uh, Bill Dobson and a few other examples of what we would consider to be less effective teaching, which I think goes back to the larger theme of this episode, which is you know performance pedagogy and platforms, right? Which is how how our current moment actually speaks to the digital and the pedagogical um even in our kind of social entertainment and why i think this this moment was probably a great moment for the chair in and as it negotiates academia um as a metaphor for the kind of current context that we are experiencing across all of these different media
2: i do have a thought which comes out of the 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 show but you know, there's you you leave us on this note of hopefulness, and 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 sort of the, and that scene where th- these students are doing sort of a queer interpretation of Moby Dick, I I really loved. It. I was like Eve Sedgwick on screen, so exciting. But but really, the the encounter with the alum who says David Duchovny should give this speech, uh, should give the the distinguished lectureship was actually something that. Uh, was ter- quite terrifying to me is that mm. you know we can have all the ideas to move in all the cool directions but someone with money might say i want this for your for the department university um i want this direction and and it sort of forecloses the kind of innovative work that is already happening on the ground and so um i thought that was a really important moment as silly as it was right you know um, that character was was jokey and and Duchovny was was marvelous, but but also um, irrelevant, right? But but I I just wonder who gets to dictate what our priorities are, even as we you know as much as I love you both and we can innovate and imagine together and play and teach work like Trevor Buffoni's, you know who gets to dictate where what our curriculum looks like and. Where we make theater and how we make it, you know is, is always worries me.
1: Well, and not to sort of absorb time, but it's also worth noting that one of the great um, reposts or rejoinders to uh, this uh, you, you was asking questions about structural inequity, which was Catherine Young's brilliant blog post of uh, The Adjunct, which was published on Academe Blog, began as a Facebook post. And then as a result, as it, when it began to get heat, like Catherine Young, who's, who's a performance scholar who teaches in a contingent position at Princeton where I work, and she uh, sort of enumerated broad- from her my impression her own experience as well as her her, her experiences uh going to cuny as a graduate student and then observing colleagues all over the all over the world working contingently like what would it look to create a cringy wincy uh Uh, comedy of of awkward intimacies that doesn't center on the seat of power, but instead centers on the most marginalized workers that make the university run. And those who haven't seen it, Catherine Young's blog post is at Academe Blog, and it's called The Adjunct. And it is definitely worth reading alongside, because it does open up the bigger structural questions of inequity that I think Kareem just reminded us to always frame any consideration of the pleasures of some of the privileges that come with full-time appointments.
0: I, I think we could talk endlessly. I know I could to, to both of you. Um, but I, you know, I, 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 I just want to thank you both again for, for hosting the podcast um, this this month. And we'll look forward to future conversations. Um, uh, you know, we'll certainly put all of the links to everything that we discussed on the show page and in, encourage people to, to take a look at that. Um, uh, just briefly at the end, um, we always have a series on drafts, things you're thinking about, things you're working on, new ideas, um, uh, Kareem, let's go ahead and and start with you. What is your, what's your draft? What's on your Um, mind?
2: Yeah. So this summer at Atha, Michelle Luke Carragher hosted a really excellent session on um, journal editing and I'm currently guest editing a special issue of theater, uh, of text and performance quarterly, uh, called critical Anti studies. And I am really up in my feelings of having to say no to people getting no's from reviewers. Uh, and just, you know, one of Michelle's asks was, can we train people to, 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 to really understand what the work of editing involves? Um, and I wish I had a training. I wish I had um, someone to lean on because it is really hard work and hats off to those who've done it before and sent rejections because its so it like takes me a very long time to say no because I, I just I, I, I'm rooting for everyone. Um, but yeah, that's what's on my, my mind. Brian.
1: My, t- my drafts, I've been impressed by some of the articles that have been coming from American theater um, as American theater magazine had to pivot during the pandemic to an entirely online platform. They also expanded what they what they considered their coverage. And there's two, two articles that have just been really buzzing about in my brain. They've come out in the last month or so. One is by Sarah Mantel, and it's about um, her experiences working with what is. Uh, called Resilience Services of sort of what uh, Katie Russell's, uh, I'm getting the name wrong in recent theater topics around debriefing and unrolling, like what is the sort of the question of taking on trauma, taking off trauma, especially in an educational setting. So this idea of what are the additional kinds of apparatuses alongside intimacy work, alongside of all of these things that can make make the work of doing theater less traumatic. And then in a very different register, Christian Lewis, who is a PhD candidate at CUNY, wrote a very compelling piece about whether or not, what is the role of twit, of Twitter and twit, tweet reviews in the context of a ever-shifting ecosystem of professional coverage of live performance. So those are just two pieces that American Theater, under the editorship of Rob Weiner-Kent, has been really activating some really smart uh, in uh, searching d- explorations of what, a, what about new potentials and new futures and and so it's um and and there's some of the most in i think really intelligent writing going on is sometimes pops up at american theater and it's something i'm it's sort of again falling between the cracks is it industry or is it the academy and i i do hope that folks are keeping track of them but the pieces by sarah mentel and christian lewis i just think are asking the questions we need to be engaging and they're really interesting pieces worth visiting
0: that's great thank thank you uh so much for that and and kudos and thank you Kareem I, I do know how the labor of, of editing and and journals and books and the challenge of that and you know hats off to you it occurs to me though as you're talking and and the chair sparks this as well how many things we are expected to do that we receive very little explicit training um, in 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 academia if at all so um, there's always a lot of, of learning on the job um. My draft is just to to highlight a recent show that that was here an exhibit at a, at the art gallery of York University. So it's you know right down the hall from me of of Jess Dobkins um, uh, so-called retrospective. And it's a kind of history retrospective of her career as a, a queer perform uh, queer performance artist. And it's absolutely hilarious and quite brilliant in its, restaging of the ephemera uh of those events so everything from posters to recreating these you know marvelous um little animated scenes in pink porta potties that are in the gallery um that activate when you open the door and and it's just it's just it's such good stuff and it's a combination of media and and puppetry and objects and, um, and signage. And, you know, as a, as a Gen X, uh, you know, queer lesbian, like, uh, you know, dyke, I really kind of totally jive on all of the, um, zines and like those, those handwritten posters of the, of the late eighties and early nineties. Brian is now nodding at me. Um, you can look it up online, Kareem. (laughs) Um, uh, but but also um, but there's also a really wonderful um, there's a, a a four hour durational film of a of a piece that she did um, uh, you know based on the whole idea of how many performance artists does it take to to screw in a light bulb um, and you and it's made up of documentation both kind of quote unquote official documentation but also all the other things that people filmed while they were there so um, sketches people made notes people took pictures that they took right so this idea of like how does one construct a queer community archive right and and decenter a a sort of singular um, voice and then the and then it has a last room which is one of my major interests in it which is um all about um creating an augmented reality engagement with archival objects so she makes these archival boxes and then there are these um, iPads that you can use, and you can scan these tarot cards, and you can scan the edge of the archival box, and you will get um, digital objects of of performance. So that includes video as well as um, uh, the signs and the. And, and so I just I really love the kind of balancing of the materiality and the digit uh, and the digitization and the ways in which a performance archive and an archive of performance art kind of has to be everywhere and nowhere simultaneously, right? Like it has to be in objects and in... The absence that the objects point to, it has to be in what's captured in video, what's left out in video, it's what's, you know, available in digital mechanisms and then also uh, lost in that transfer. Um, so, I, I, you know, it, it, it ran here all too briefly um, because it had gotten bumped because of the pandemic, but it was a great event, well-documented um, and I really hope it circulates to um, other galleries, museums, and and spaces near you. Because it's if it comes to you, it's it's really worth seeing. It's just a just a great and and a very fun time. Well, thank you both again. It's been wonderful to to. S- to spend this time with you. And uh, we'll be in touch soon. Um, and everyone, thank you so much for listening. And um, this has been episode 50 of on Tap, And we'll look forward to seeing you at 51 soon. Thanks so much.
1: On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in mm-hmm. theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for OnTap, and on Twitter at on Tap Podcast.